It's my pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Bill Dorman. Bill Dorman is the news director of Hawaii Public Radio. He previously worked at CNN for 21 years as a writer, producer, and reporter based out of Atlanta, New York, Washington, D.C., and Tokyo. He also served in Tokyo as a managing editor of Asia Pacific Broadcast for Bloomberg News, where he was responsible for bureaus in Hong Kong, Beijing, Singapore, and Sydney. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Bill Dorman. Aloha, and thank you for, uh, for coming and uh, turning out in such great numbers. Wonderful to, uh, to have you all with us, and uh, thank you, Gregory. Also fortunate to have one of the nation's top political journalists, not a phrase that I use lightly, but one that I use accurately, <laughs> E.J. Dion. He's a nationally syndicated columnist for the Washington Post. He's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and university professor in the Foundations of Democracy and Culture at Georgetown University. Also, he's a PhD, he's a Rhodes Scholar, and perhaps most importantly, a longtime supporter of and participant in public radio. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Listeners to Hawaii Public Radio will know him from his regular Friday appearances on All Things Considered, in addition to other media appearances and analysis on MSNBC, this week on ABC. Uh, he's written seven books, his most recent, as Gregory mentioned, being a joint project with Norm Ornstein and Thomas Mann, with, I've got to repeat the title again because it is uh, a great title, One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the not yet deported. EJ, aloha and ikomomai, welcome. Uh, aloha, thank you. thank you. So we'll just jump right in. Um, your latest book is broken into two parts. You start with Trump and Trumpism, sort of how we got to having Donald Trump in the White House. And then you move on to the way forward. And in the first part, you lay out some frankly discouraging trends in terms of uh, American politics over time from a, a loosening grip on the importance of facts and truth to a decline in civility. We'll get to uh, some of that. But you wind up actually with a fairly upbeat assessment. Um, what, what do you find so encouraging? Well, first, let me say aloha and thank you all so much uh, for coming. Uh, and thanks for the applause for public radio. I was a fan of public radio long before I ever worked for them. And when our son was learning to talk, he was walking around one day, and he said a word. And I looked at him, I said, James, say that word again. And I said, he said it again. And then I said, say it one more time. The word was Chechnya. And I yelled across the house to my wife, we really do listen to NPR too much in this house. Uh, so it's uh, great to be here, great to be with Bill, and it was fun to be uh, at NPR this morning. It's also great to be here uh, for the Inouye Institute. He was a formidable figure who had a really big impact on our politics, and this state has such fascinating politics. It has already given a son to the presidency, and so the next job will be for Hawaii to give a daughter, one of its daughters, to the presidency. Um, the Congresswoman can tell us if she's interested. Uh, the uh, Thanks for coming, I appreciate it. Um, so 
I would like, the other thing I want to say is I once got an introduction that ended, and now for the latest dope from Washington, here's E.J. Beyond. <laughs> so that was much nicer. So thank you very much. Um, the book is basically upbeat for a couple of reasons. It's, it's, very, um, it's very worried. It's a, it's, a, it's a worried book. I mean, we wrote the book because we are worried about um, what's happening to democracy in our country now and also what's happening to liberal democracy around the world. This is a very dangerous time, and I don't think liberal democracy has been under this sort of threat really since the 1930s. And we're not in the 30s. I, we could talk about that. I don't think there can be a straight metaphor to that. But it's a very disturbing thing in that we argue, in, as you say, in the beginning of the book, that Trump is very disturbing, uh, particularly for his disruption and uh, of a series of longstanding norms that have kept our politics going. You can't have formal rules about everything. You really have to count on public figures to live by certain norms, and he doesn't do that. And then we also talk about um, his autocratic tendencies, which I think are, are deeply troubling as well. But the reason we're optimistic for a couple of reasons. One is we have already seen, we saw from the very moment of his election um, that uh, large numbers of people in the country were ready to act to protect democracy. The women's marches, the day after um, he was inaugurated, uh, which, oh, go ahead, which, uh, which drew crowds, despite what the president said, far bigger than the crowds who were at his inauguration, um, sent a really powerful message. It wasn't just the one in DC. I, uh, in, uh, I think it was in Pocatello, Idaho, uh, or um, uh, I think it was Pocatello, drew 10,000 people. I mean, there were marches all over the country that uh, drew people, and the recent ones were huge and only got lost uh, because Trump produces so much news uh, that they, they really, I think, didn't get the attention they deserved. But secondly, um, you know, as soon as he began taking steps that people in the country um, found troubling or dangerous, uh, there was real mobilization when he did the travel ban. Um, the people rushed to the airports. Lawyers, lawyers were heroes. I know I'm married to a lawyer, so I love lawyers. But um, you know, there, there was extraordinary how many people acted immediately to try to protect those uh, threatened. And you've seen that in a lot of spheres. Is and that then, energy still here? I'm sorry. Is that energy still? Well, in existing? fact, I think that the elections last November were a remarkable display of the pushback uh, to Trump. That the what happened not only in Virginia and New Jersey, which got a lot of attention, but in Pennsylvania, in Connecticut, in Maine, in Georgia, in Washington State, you had not only people voting for Democrats to send a message, but you had extraordinary turnouts in Virginia. Somebody told me recently that uh, the Democrat, Ralph Northam, expected to win, but they had no idea that the turnout was going to be uh, what it was. And um, you, know, you also see it in the polls, for example, when you ask, uh, do you strongly approve, or do you, know, do you approve of Trump or disapprove, and then do you feel strongly or not? Strong disapprovers are at like 49%. Strong approvers are at 28, 29%. I mean, so there is a reaction in the country, a mobilization um, in the country. Um, and so I worry that we have lost some things in this period that are going to be hard to get back. I worry about our standing in the world. I particularly worry about our 
standing in Asia at, a, at, at the very moment when China is making a really big move in the world, we seem to be uh, in retreat. Um, and I don't care whether you're a hawk or a dove, um, I think America uh, needs to be strong in the world to stand up for certain basic values, which even when we've messed up, uh, I think we still were a force uh, for, um, you know, for human rights and for democracy um, most of the time. Um, and, and then in terms of other changes, the courts could be changed in a very substantial way for a long period of time. And lastly, I worry about the destruction to the structure of government itself. It's remarkable how many jobs Trump hasn't even filled. And uh, my colleague at the Washington Post recently wrote, uh, Fred Hyatt recently wrote a really good column saying, you know, we don't really appreciate that having a broadly honest and competent government, and I'm talking about civil servants, people who do the work every day, the people at the CDC who show up when there are health crises, or the people first responders inside our government uh, who uh, show up at disasters and all kinds of other basic things. Um, I think it's partly because Fred and I were foreign correspondents. We know what corrupt, really corrupt government looks like. Um, we have a pretty good government. I think that structure's in danger. So that'll take time, but I think we have the capacity broadly to overcome from this, and I think that's where the country is right now. You talk about. Me, that's a long answer, but it's all. Sorry. Right. Hope is a good thing. I do believe hope is a good thing, and I think it's a plausible hope now. Hope oh, go ahead. Is, I, so, within the world of, of plausible hope and within the world of, of international relations and looking to history as you do so often, there are cycles, there are pendulums, there are the idea of America first is uh, not a novel uh, phrase in this administration, but. What concerns you in terms of changes that might be underway that, if, not, uh, if they're not irreversible, are more difficult to come back from? Well, as I say, I think the loss of influence in the world will take more time. And I think that um, you know, it's, there are opportunity costs uh, to this as well. I mean, I think one of the sort of distressing and maybe depressing things is um, Trump's election did point to problems that we actually need to deal with uh, in the country. One of my obsessions, and we write about this in the book, is uh, uh, with our lack of empathy. I, I, one of the, the nicest personal things that happened to me in the 2016 campaign is my friend David Brooks and I were speaking before the um, uh, debate at Wash U, and I just happened to say that if I had a hat, uh, I made a hat, it would say, make America empathetic again. And there was a really nice man in the audience who came up to me afterward and said, I really like that, and you're gonna hear from me. And about three weeks later, the hat showed up in the mail. He had made the hat, and it was a perfect replica of the Trump hat. And our son said, Dad, it's a great hat, but you can't wear it, because from a distance, it looks too much like a Trump hat. <laughs> um, and, you know, so that, Believing, as I do, in empathy, and we could talk about that some more, um, I think that even those of us who uh, very much oppose Trump have to sort of think about, well, why did all lots and lots of people vote for Trump? And I, I think it would be wrong to discount the fact um, that racial reaction, in some cases outside outright racism, was part of that vote. 
Um, but it doesn't do us any good to take a whole big group of 60 million uh, Americans and say there, you know, race was the only thing going on here. And in our book, we try to be very careful about this because we don't want to deny that there's prejudice out there. But we also think it's wrong to sort of tar every single Trump voter and um, reaction around race and immigration are often linked to economic discontent. People, when things are going well, when people's lives are going well, tend to react less to this. And you have around the country um, places that have really been hammered, not over the last five years, but over the last 20 years or 30 years. Um, I grew up in a factory town in Massachusetts called Fall River. We're one of those hammered places, and we're so Democratic up there uh, that Hillary Clinton still won my hometown, but she actually won it by less than Obama did. And it's very interesting when you look at this election, very affluent places, um, uh, Obama, I mean, uh, uh, Hillary tended to run ahead of Obama. So if you looked at like the Boston suburbs, um, the, uh, they voted very heavily for Clinton. Where she lost ground was in towns like mine and industrial towns. You saw that in New York, upstate versus the city. You saw that in Illinois, Chicago versus downstate. So there are places that are hurting. And I say all that because we really ought to be doing something about the folks left out. That includes people in inner cities, but it also includes people in these old mill towns. And we're not doing anything. If anything, we're moving backwards, even where their interests are concerned. This tax bill that the Congress uh, just passed is a terribly reactionary um, tax bill that will actually make the income distribution worse at a time when we ought to be fighting uh, this long-term trend toward economic inequality. So I worry about our, the opportunity costs. So all the time we spend talking about Trump himself, we're not talking about health care, we're not talking about education, we're not talking about job training. Um, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. I, I, people say, you must be great, you're a journalist and Trump is so great for you. And yeah, Trump has been great for our business, uh, but I'd actually be, in, I'd rather, in some ways, I'd much rather be writing columns that people would say are more boring uh, about actually solving some of the problems out there. We're just missing that right now. You know, you had a great line in the, in the back room talking about uh, that's related to this in terms of uh, policy, saying politics needs more lifting up than policy in many ways these days. Right. Well, I am uh, the most unpopular view I have is that I'm a New England Patriots fan. Uh, <laughs> this is the second most unpopular view, but I, I always say I loved deflate. Yeah, I knew it. It's gotta, uh, somebody did a little map about how people are rooting in the Super Bowl, and it was little New England one side, and then I think they colored in Dallas just because everybody hates Dallas too, and then the rest, the whole rest of the country was for Philly, for the Eagles. Um, no, I always, I love Deflategate because it taught me the joys of being a Fox News commentator. I didn't care what the facts were, I just knew which side I was on. Uh. Um, but my other, second most unpopular view is I actually like politicians. I think politics is a good thing. I think you cannot hate politics if you love democracy. Uh, and that what is politics in a democratic society? Politics is an effort to work out differences in a diverse society with people having opposing views uh, in a way that keeps us from shooting at each other, from beating each other up. It's, a, it's the attempt, the peaceful attempt to solve problems 
and resolve disputes. Um, and so the notion that politics is automatically dirty, well, if politics is dirty uh, at all times, then you really can't have democracy because you can't have democracy uh, without politics. Now, yeah, there are some crooked politicians. One of my favorite crooked politicians, by the way, was Edwin Edwards of... Uh, uh, Louisiana, some of you may remember him. He, he knew everybody in the state, knew he was corrupt, and he was running, uh, trying to get back into office during a recession, and he went around the state and said, if you reelect my opponent, there'll be nothing left for me to steal. Uh, he won, and he went, and the economy came back, and he went to the slammer, so he kept both promises. Um, but so, yeah, there are, there's corruption in politics. There are bad people in politics. But politics is basically a good thing, and we don't think of it that way anymore. I was raised to think it's a good thing, and I still think it's a good thing. But of course, I was raised in Massachusetts, where the late Mary McGrory once said, every baby born in Massachusetts is born with a campaign manager's gene. Um, <laughs> we really love politics where I come from. <laughs> you know, you referenced voter turnout just as a, as a reference for Hawaii on the last uh, round. Um, Sadly, voter turnout uh, lowest in the nation for the, the fifth presidential cycle in a row. Only state in the country where it's below 50%. Uh, Wait, but you know, I wonder what is it like to sit in Hawaii when the television networks are telling you who won? Um, you know, I, it, I, I, I'm, I, you know and, and I think there, there's some evidence that voter turnout tends to be higher in uh, highly contested states. Uh, why is that? People understand what the stakes are in their state. They think they, they, they're not sure how things are going to turn out. Campaigns devote enormous resources to those states, so they're pulling voters out. They devote a lot of advertising, so people are very aware. And I think that's one of the problems with the Electoral College, uh, is uh, I'm, I'm for the... We talk in the book about a series of reforms, one of which is I think we should have a elect president by a popular vote. Uh, because then everybody's vote counts. Right now, um, they, thank you. Um, right now, um, you know, some people who expect the Democrats to win in Hawaii are probably making a pretty good bet, you know? Uh, same in Massachusetts, you know, in uh, Alabama, except in this recent Senate race, uh, you know, the expectation goes the other way. So I, I think it's not, uh, I, I think we, the system itself can encourage a low turnout, and probably especially so here. That breakdown. See, I've just let the whole state off the hook. I just want, you know, that's local pandering, I think. And we can talk about uh, the local community and the importance of, of local community issues within politics, but let me also just draw a broader picture in terms of the last presidential vote. Uh, according to the uh, Hawaii Office of Elections, uh, Hillary Clinton, 62.2% of the vote. Uh, Donald Trump, 30% uh, of the vote in Hawaii. Still, that's 128,000-plus uh, people in, in Hawaii, just, just you know, on a relative basis. One of the things that you write about, uh, in addition to empathy and in addition to some of the things that you mentioned, is, is truth. And... Being journalists, truth is, is an important uh, issue. And, and Used to be, anyway. Uh, <laughs> we still like that. Yeah. Uh, but you write about the importance of establishing verifiable truths. But in an atmosphere where lying has become nearly an expected behavior in certain 
situations, arguably, at least with, uh, with, with some. The definition of acceptable civil behavior has slipped. Someone else, another journalist writer, wrote that uh, bully worship under various disguises has become a universal religion, and we've now sunk to a depth at which the restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent men. And that George was Orwell. in 1939. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and 30, think about that. I, I hope we're not in 1939. There's a lot of things that went haywire. Uh, mm. from 1939 forward. Orwell is one of my favorite figures. I, I, by the way, my visit today at, to University of Hawaii, these students were awesome, and I actually asked them to read George Orwell's uh, great essay, Politics in the English Language, which is, I, whatever, whenever I teach, I assign that as the first assignment to my students. It has nothing to do with grading. I just want them to read it, where Orwell talked about how the corruption of language leads to the corruption of politics. Uh, and how, um, you know, particularly autocratic dictatorial regimes um, try to alter language uh, to gloss over truths. You know, famously back in the 30s and 40s, they didn't talk about murdering opponents, they talked about liquidating them. And there's all kinds of ways in which people try to use people who are trying to deceive or trying to undercut freedom um, use language to disguise their intent or gloss over uh, what they're doing. Um, and the, there, I think we are in a very much more difficult environment now for truth, partly because, uh, unfortunately, the president um, doesn't seem to know what it is. Um, you know, and, and it's, you know, that both the New York Times and the Washington Post have just made up these long, not made up, but sort of verified these long lists of statements he made that were lies. Um, and it took a while, by the way, for the press to decide to use the word lie. A lot of people were reluctant to do it. There was almost a philosophical debate. Well, do we know that, you know, he consciously Knowingly. knew that what he said was untrue? And over time, it became pretty clear that, yes, if you say the same thing after you've been corrected six times, it's probably a lie. And so that's, and that, you know, at least politicians used to feel guilty about lying. Uh, and, you know, I'm a Catholic. I believe in, I believe guilt is socially constructive. Uh, and, you know, this, this is lying with impunity, so that's bad. But the other part of the environment is that, um, you know, and we, we could have a long conversation about technological change and what it's done mm. to the media. And I'm not a nostalgist. I'm, I, I don't like nostalgia as a general principle, people with hair color like mine saying everything was better in the old days. Mm. The new world is really great mm. in many respects. Uh, there are more, there's more diversity of voices. You have access on your little phone uh, to more information than you ever imagined having at your fingertips in your lifetime, real, truthful information. Um, and there are many good things about the new situation, however, um, what we've lost is um, a kind of shared sense that certain media, remember, I mean, uh, there are enough people here old enough to remember there were three networks, uh, and the evening newscast was taken pretty seriously as sort of the ground for the debate. And there were people on the left and the right and the middle who argued about the facts, but there was some reasonable acceptance about what the facts were. 
Um, and now, um, everything is a competing narrative. Uh, and your narrative is different than mine. And I'm sorry, if my narrative says um, that uh, the Earth is flat and doesn't revolve um, you know, around the sun, um, I'm entitled to say that, but it's just not true. And this word narrative, which used to be a kind of left deconstructionist word, has now really become a kind of right-wing word where, um, you know, it's, well, we, it's, you just have a different narrative. No, there are facts that matter, and I, I worry about how we reclaim that. Now, there's still a lot of people who care about facts, and, uh, the, you know, as I say, this period has been good for the traditional news business. I mean, we may be back to a time uh, when really attractive actors play journalists in movies like in The Post as opposed to <laughs> people in the bar scene in Star Wars, which is where we were for a long time. Uh, but, so that's good. Uh, so people are trying to find, I, I think people are starting to say this matters, but it's an environment where I think it's harder and harder to get people to agree, here are the facts, now let's argue. Instead, we're having arguments about you know, factual matters where there really is, shouldn't be an argument. You know, I'm, I was interested in what you were saying about the power of language. Words matter. Uh, there is corrosive language now that has crept into a lot of the dialogue. Uh, number one, how do we dig ourselves out of that hole? And number two, in something like a government shutdown that we just saw, you had people calling each other names and, and language really to an excessive degree that, that, I don't know, were you surprised by that? Um, no, I wasn't surprised. Oh, I, I must say, I was really, you know, every day you say, well, I can't get worse than this, you know? And then there was that ad put out by Trump's campaign uh, which said that Democrats will be complicit in every murder committed by an illegal alien from now forward. That was an astonishing thing. And what was really amazing is somebody from, it was Trump's presidential campaign, uh, and somebody from Trump's staff said, oh, that was an outside group. So Trump is the first guy to have a presidential campaign that's actually an outside group. Um, so that was really astounding. And you talk about change in language and how revealing it is. Um, until a few days before the shutdown, everybody said, oh, of course the Dreamers should be protected. Um, you know, and briefly the president said he wanted to have a bill of love. Remember that? Um, as soon as the politics of shutdown began, almost every Republican switched and suddenly the Dreamers were illegal aliens. Um, and I found that really disconcerting. You have Paul Ryan had given very warm speeches about the Dreamers. Um, and it was just disconcerting to see even Republicans, with a few exceptions, um, you know, even Republicans who had had some sympathy for the situation of Dreamers suddenly adopting this incredibly divisive language. And so, yeah, it was uh, disturbing. I mean, the shutdown, I have a column in tomorrow's post where I call it the Catch-22 shutdown, which is that it was morally necessary and politically unwinnable. Um, and that was the problem, that I think it was important to stand up for the Dreamers and to stand up to what Trump said. I don't want to repeat his comment on uh, other countries, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, and, uh, and yet, I thought that the, the, the issue got framed in a way that 
they weren't going to win. And I think it's, it's, I think shutdowns are probably not a good tactic for liberals or Democrats in the long run because liberals and Democrats basically believe in government. Uh, and I think their own people, um, you know, are, um, you know, are uncomfortable. And they still, um, you know, so I, I kind of get both sides of this argument. I get why the advocates of the Dreamers were disappointed that Democrats uh, ended the shutdown. On the other hand, um, I'm not sure that that fight was going to be won through a shutdown. I think they've got to, I think kind of the centrist and progressive wing of the party have to figure out a joint strategy and stop beating each other's brains out. One side says we're practical, the other side says we're principled. Um, you know, those two actually go better together. Uh, and I hope they can figure out another approach. You, know, you talked about empathy and you talked about uh, one of Trump's strengths of reaching people who felt economically distant and economically discon uh, disconnected. And in your book, you talk about the importance of job creation, but good jobs at good wages. Again, here in Hawaii, we have jobs. We have the lowest unemployment rate in the nation, 2%. Um, but according to census figures, we also top the charts in the number of multiple jobs per household. We have one of the highest costs of living in the country. What is the pathway from where we are now to good jobs at good wages? And what's, what's the starting point in your view? If I had an answer to this question that I was totally confident in, I'd run for president. And I'm not, <laughs> running, I'm not running for president. I think that we are in an incredibly challenging environment in the world uh, compared to the one we were in 40 years ago. Um, you know, when you think about the, the period from World War II to about the mid-1970s, um, the U.S. was utterly dominant. Our main competitors had literally had their countries and their economies destroyed. Um, and we came out of World War II stronger than any country in the world with the most in extraordinary, um, uh, you know, industrial plant, uh, you know, uh, industrial capacity. Um, second, we came out of that war with a much stronger sense of solidarity uh, than we have uh, right now, and that public policy tended to push toward equality, not against equality, not total equality, but in a more um, egalitarian um, direction. Um, the global economy, if you add a billion to two billion people to the global economy, you're going to bid down wages in the global economy. It's going to be a real challenge. I think the people in a, a global, the, the people hurt most by globalization are the least advantaged people in the richest countries. Um, and we haven't figured out yet how um, to move, help them move forward. I think there's a lot more um, we can do. I think we could start by getting everybody health care. I think we can start by giving everyone um, access. Go ahead. We should cheer universal health care, which you have here pretty much in Hawaii. Um, I, the, uh, we, we should um, you know, guarantee access. We talk about uh, access to college, but for a lot of people, um, a, a year or two of post-high school training would make an enormous difference in terms of moving them into the kind of work uh, that uh, would, would allow them to live uh, well and support uh, their families. I'm a big fan of community colleges. I think they can be used more and in a lot of 
good ways. Um, I think I'm in favor of some, I, I think we should do a lot more about uh, the government, and we talk about this in the book, um, the, the work family issue, we, you know, the market doesn't reward the work of parents. Um, there is no, you know, compensation uh, for that work. And that there is really a conflict between a market economy and family life. And you've got to sort of push back against that by creating ways in which parents can do their jobs, um, you know, through leave policies and other, other things. Um, and lastly, you know, a, a certain amount of direct redistribution can work. The earned income tax credit, which uh, lifts up the wages, lifts up the incomes of lower income people, is actually extremely successful. And we've got to find ways of using something like the earned income tax credit in a broader way um, to help folks uh, who are earning um, wages uh, below uh, what they need to support a, a family. I mean, you can, we can and should increase the minimum wage, um, but that alone, I think, will not accomplish uh, what we need to do. So those are some ideas, but I, um, you know, I am still struggling, as a lot of people are, with trying to find a really, you know, the problem is, I mean, when you think back to the Clinton campaign, I just ticked off a bunch of policies. We need a, a more, a, a broader and more persuasive argument that there's a path forward that isn't the Trumpian path. Uh, and I think a lot of people, heard, well, first of all, they didn't hear a lot about the Clinton policies. And secondly, it always sounds like, and, and, and I just did this myself, so it's, um, I'm applying the criticism to myself. It sounds like a kind of laundry list, and I, I we we struggle in the book to talk about you know a, a sort of a GI bill, a new GI bill, and how we can think in large terms where a series of pieces fit together in a larger framework. And that's what I'm struggling to, and I think a lot of people are struggling to create right now. So you're a Massachusetts native. I'm going to swipe a line famously from a Massachusetts politician. Tip O'Neill famously observed all politics is local. And we have some local politics to inject in this room. We're fortunate to have Congresswoman Colleen Hanabusa here. And uh, if you could join us on the stage. Uh, thank you. For those of you who don't know, Colleen represents Hawaii's first congressional district in the U.S. House of Representatives, an attorney by profession. She previously served as member of the Hawaii State Senate from 1998 to 2010, where she served as Hawaii's first female Senate president from 2007 to 2010. And thanks for, uh, for joining us. And well, thanks for having me. And not to uh, mention the elephant in the room, no disrespect to any Republicans uh, who may be here, but you are running for governor, right. challenging uh, incumbent David Ige. Uh, and I just wanted to point out that we're not here to talk about that race tonight. Uh, but we are... By the way, you know the rule, uh, ignore everything that someone says before the word but. <laughs> Go ahead. All right. I'm Why? Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> but we're continuing <laughs> on this theme of will the Trump administration renew American democracy? What's your opening bid? 
You know, I think that the problem is, it's almost like there's going to be a swing. And, and when we're gone through what we've all had to go, I mean, no one, a friend of mine said that, uh, she said she used to bash climate deniers. And she decided that after, when she woke up on uh, the day after general election, she was uh, a political denier and just denied the fact that a Donald Trump could, could actually be there and become president of the United States. I think what we're seeing in the Women's March, uh, you know, in, in Hawaii, I see some of my friends out there, J20, they call themselves J20 plus because it's after January 20th. And what, what we find is that I think there's gonna be a swing. In a place like Hawaii, it's gonna to go to the left. Other parts of this country, it may still be going to the right. And the, I think that swing is necessary before we come to someplace in the middle. The problem, though, is whether the America or the United States that some of us envision really wants to be in the middle. And until we get a better sense, uh, it's gonna end up that we're gonna to continue to have this kind of a, a, sort of like a discontent. I mean, there are, I have colleagues in Congress who are very, um, they consider themselves very progressive, who are more afraid of the progressive movement than anything else. Because, because they're afraid they're not progressive enough. So it's almost like the Republicans, who are more moderate, who are more afraid of the Tea Party movement, back when I first got elected, than they were of us Democrats. And they would be honest. They said, we're not afraid of you. We're afraid of being taken out by the Tea Party guys because they have the resources. And the most important thing that I think we all have to recognize is the reason why they're successful is the mantra is very simple. The reason why, as you put in your book, the reason why Donald Trump appealed appeal to so many is because he said, we're gonna make America great again. You know, so that was what sold people. That's what people want to hear. I'm not talking about everyone. I'm talking about the people that he needed to win. I mean, winning Michigan, Pennsylvania, I mean, those, those kinds of parts that he won was phenomenal. Well, Michigan, Ohio, and Wisconsin. I mean, it, it was amazing that he was able to do that. Michigan one of the strongest union states around. He could only win that if he lost or the Democrats lost part of its base. But it, I think it was. And I, and I was um, fortunate to teach a, a course at the University of Hawaii for the Daniel K. Noe Institute. And, they, um, and I see Gerald Cotto in the back, who was kind enough to name it for me, which was... <laughs> Civil was a liberties. wonderful man who gave me a wonderful tour of Honolulu today. That's right. And thanks to him, I could send him a picture, send my daughter a picture of the uh, Hawaii Five O building, which she got a great <laughs> kick out of. <laughs> Gerald named my course, and it was called "Civil Liberties in the Time of National Crisis," and that was in the the, the spring of 2016 that I taught that course. And you know, when you look back at it, it was, it was an amazing way to label where we were heading, civil liberties in the time of national crisis. You know, looking back on that comparison, and this is going to be for both of you, but Congresswoman, you, f you first went to Congress in 2011. 
I'm curious in your perspective in the tone of civility, of discussion, of the body politic, what is different now from then and, and EJ perhaps over a, if you choose, a longer time perspective, you may, um, but just since 2011, what's different? Now? The difference is Republicans control everything. Remember when I first got elected, we had the Senate, we did, we lost the House, but we had the Senate and you had the President. And for those of us in Hawaii, we still had Daniel K. Inouye and Daniel K. Akaka. So we had our two very senior senators who understood how to really get things done and what it meant to be, quote, bipartisan. What has evolved since then is bipartisan is a bad word. And that's why if you're familiar with what the Daniel K. Noah Institute does in Washington when they do their series with the Library of Congress, it was to actually address this whole issue. So you'd have a Republican and you'd have a, a Democrat and they're to share what bipartisanism means because that was so important to the senator. Now, on both sides, I feel that we're polarizing. And hopefully that polarization will force us to begin to reevaluate, as EJ says, what is the new democracy? That is really where we gotta get to. I tend to agree with this book. I, I, I love reading the way forward, and I do believe it has optimistic. I love the ideas of a GI Bill because it, it tells us that you had a, that's what led to the greatest generation being the greatest generation and how so much, even in Hawaii politics, for women, it was those guys who came back, who became members of the Hawaii State Legislature that gave us prepaid health that we all take for granted. It gave us really, we were the first state that addressed abortion. It was all of that that, that gave us where we are. It was members of the greatest generation. So I, I'm hoping that you work out the details <laughs> of how we come out with this new generation GI Bill and get that sense of, of almost that service. Politics is not a bad word. Politicians aren't all evil. You know, I, I remember when I first got elected, someone said, the best lesson you're gonna get is this one. When you're running, you're everyone's hope. Once you get elected, you're worthless because you've gotta be on the take because why would anybody, if you're any worth anything in the real world, become a politician? You know, you, you, you're living in a glass bowl, you are not gonna make money, so you gotta be on the take. Because how do you make up for all this money that you're gonna lose? Think about it. And that's, I think, public perception. The, um, no, that, 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 that's very disconcerting, that last thing. <laughs> um, but is it you know, true? Because, yeah, well, wait, I don't think it's true of all politicians. That, oh, no, that, no, uh, no, no, that's not um, No, and, and, you know, I was, I think some of this just goes back to that greatest generation period where after the government played a large role in ending the Depression and after we won World War II, public service was seen and that includes politics, uh, was seen as a great thing. And I remember um, as a kid, um, you know, after John Kennedy was elected, it wasn't a partisan thing either. There was just great excitement about Washington and what Washington could do. 
Um, and, you know, and then we have had this long period of disappointment uh, from, you know, Vietnam through Watergate through um, all the way up to the Great Recession. So it's a, uh, but I want to pick up real quick on two things. One is, um, and we could talk about this another time, I actually think the polarization is asymmetric. In other words, I believe that the evidence shows that the right has moved farther right and the Republicans have moved farther right than the Democrats have moved to the left. It's true there are some people worried about some primaries from the left, um, but um, you know the evidence is in the Bernie-Hillary race, the Democrats nominated Hillary, not Bernie. In the Trump, et cetera, race, they nominated Trump. I don't think that's an accident. Well, remember, some and, people believe it's because of the superdelegates. That's right. why Hillary got Right, but that's nominated. not true. In other words, yeah. that she won more, I mean, I, I, I don't knock Bernie, I, right. I, but um, she got more votes than Bernie. This is, this is an analytical point, not a partisan point to Hillary Bernie. It's mm -hmm. just that, um, you know, the Democratic Party, in, by all measures, if you look just at what Democrats call themselves, there are a lot more moderates uh, in the Democratic Party than there are in the Republican Party right now. That didn't used to be the case, and that goes to your other um, and, and you mentioned, by the way, also the labor movement. Uh, and if we want to talk about what's allowed the inequality to rise, the decline of the labor movement is a very important piece of that. And we've got to figure out new ways for um, workers to have their voices heard. And or the, the old forms may not work as well. I mean, I'm for strengthening unions where you can, but we've got to figure out what to do, because the labor movement really did play a big role in that long period of broadly shared prosperity. We have had lots of moments in politics where people are mean and nasty uh, to each other, um, but I do think it's worse now. And I don't think it's just worse among politicians. Um, you know, one of the students uh, in class today raised the issue of um, somebody putting up on Facebook, I don't want to talk, I'm going to defriend any of my people who voted for Trump. And I know a lot of people who find it very difficult to talk about politics now right. with each other, with really good friends uh, who were on the other side, because I think there is um, a more than ever a sense that the other side poses a threat to all good values and to everything I believe in. Um, and then in Congress itself, um, I think there's, um, you know, people hang around Washington less, they do less with each other. A lot of the informal ways in which people used to connect. I think one of the worst promises politicians uh, started making is, I'm not gonna move my family to Washington, Washington. I'm not gonna go Washington. Well, first that led to a lot of divorces, uh, <laughs> surprise. Um, and second, it led to a lot of, uh, a loss of some of the informal ways in which people could connect with each other. If you're rooting for your kids in a high school basketball game, you don't care what your politics are. As long as they're on the same team. Well, that's so. what I mean, yeah. Right. Um, and that we don't have those kind of, and I don't think that's the decisive thing. I think politics and ideology are the decisive things, but we've even lost a lot of those informal ways. Don't you sense that in the- You know, you, you mentioned Larry Summer in your book, and I, and I gotta tell you, when we first got elected, we were given an option to go to Harvard and be trained by right. the experts. And he was one of the speakers, and he said, the problem with Washington is that you don't live there anymore. 
And he says, you've got to live there. But it's this whole idea that, you know, come Friday, and there was a period of time in the house where you weren't working on Monday, you weren't working on Friday, because you would have to get back to your district. And he said, that is the worst thing in his mind. But I, I wanted to, you, you know, in your introduction, you also mentioned the fact that, you know, you are a Brookings Fellow. And I was reading, I've been very fortunate. I've, I've been asked to speak by Brookings uh, as well as CSIS in DC. And I, so I follow Brookings. And, I, and just today, I was reading one of their postings. And the person, a Brookings fellow like you, said that what, this, what the Trumpism means to her is that there's going to be more interest in the concept of a congressional government. Woodrow Wilson. And I said, what is this? And it's the idea that when you have a president that people don't like or is ineffective in some way, then Congress picks it up and becomes the entity. And I thought, well, that's rather frightening to me as well. <laughs> Those are my colleagues, you know, I mean, to say that. But I know these people. I know, I know. <laughs> but, you know, it's the whole idea of, okay, how do we, how do we, how do we address it? We know we've got a problem. We know, you know, the, the president is either, and, and I gotta be honest, when I taught the, uh, the DKI special class, um, I was the one who told my students, how many of you are watching Donald Trump? And they all laughed at me. I did it to the law school the semester before, and they all laughed at me. And then he became the, quote, nominee. And then I said, well, you know, you should all watch Donald Trump, because I said, as much as I've been a Hillary Clinton supporter since 2008 with Senator Inouye, I said, I am very concerned that he has a message. And I, my, my interpretation of his message wasn't make America great again. It was that America is the greatest country on this earth, and you know, if you don't like it, leave. I mean, that was the way I interpreted his message. And I said, People like it. They resonate. Resonating. Forget the East Coast. Forget the West Coast. Forget Hawaii. Middle America is what you've got to look at. That's what you've got to concentrate on. That's why I'm saying we got to watch and we got to see where we end up because Middle America is who has to be spoken to. And as you know, uh, over Obamacare, as they call it. Nancy Pelosi lost her speakership over that, and where she lost was middle America, because she could not release the, quote, blue dogs, and the, you know, the ones that people would say they're Democrat, dinos in name only, that they, she couldn't release them. She needed every single vote to get that passed. And now we see the consequences. And, well, you yeah. know what's interesting about Obamacare, and then I wonder, mm -hmm. uh, uh, we could go back and forth like mm -hmm. this all night. Um, Don't mind me. They, uh, yeah, <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Bill. Um, <laughs> no, but one of the fascinating things, uh, my favorite philosopher for 2017 was Joni Mitchell. Uh, you don't know what you got till it's gone. gone. Yeah, right. And that I think Obamacare is a really interesting example where Democrats, including President Obama, never really made an adequate case for it. And it was only when people were confronted with losing it uh, that, that people started saying to themselves, and, be, and activists were out there making a case for it in a way it had never been done no. before, 
uh, where uh, you know, the polls moved and a majority of Americans now finally, after all this time, support Obamacare because they realize I could or my neighbor could or a lot of people could lose health insurance if we got rid of this. Uh, and we still, but there wasn't enough of an outcry when in the bill they took out the individual mandate, which really is what makes Obamacare. Right, no, it's, yeah, a, it's yeah. problematic. Was, but was they there? had to do it through the back door right. because right. they couldn't do it through the front door, and at least some of it, including the Medicaid expansion and other mm -hmm. things, are still intact. Was there an understanding of that? And this goes to a broader question in terms of understanding the politics of what you're both discussing at the level of constituents and the people who vote, or in many cases, the people who don't vote, who in some cases say, I'm not going to vote because you know what, it doesn't matter. I, I think you've, uh, that's the issue to me for the middle Americans. Now remember 2013, I was there when that shutdown happened. Second part of this is give us something to watch in terms of an <laughs> indicator for, for where this goes. And 2013 was over Obamacare, but it was, the I think, the Republicans could have avoided it, and they would have had their repeal. They didn't care. They wanted a portion of Obamacare repealed. And what they failed to do was realize that the part of Obamacare that, that had something like 70 senators signed on to, including Democrats, was the repeal of the device tax. Because as you know, that forced the medical device to go offshore. So they wanted that to be repealed. But Republicans, instead of just doing that, and I told uh, a group that I was a part of that was a quote unquote called the breakfast group that was mostly Republicans and some of us Democrats, that where you made your mistake to Harry Reid was you tacked on Planned Parenthood and anti-abortion statute. I said, had you just sent a clean device tax, I said the Democrats would have been stuck. But no, they couldn't do that. They had to do all this other, and you would have had your repeal of some part, but they didn't do it. And we were shut down for three weeks. Because of that, whether we'll do something as, as we say in Hawaii, low law is that again? You know, the one thing good in being in the minority of the minority is to be able to say, it ain't us. No, I mean, it, it's a, <laughs> we don't have the votes. We couldn't stop it or do anything. But you know, that's, it's, that's exactly what you have to watch for, whether it's that hot button issue that they feel they gotta do no matter what. And by doing that, the rest, the, 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 our employees, everybody else suffers. We're gonna, it's we're, funny you said that. I, I had a friend who was in the parliament in Australia, and he was in the opposition. And I just asked him, how are you doing? And he said, I am enormously enjoying the irresponsibility <laughs> of being in the opposition. <laughs> it's easy being a dissident. <laughs> we're we're going to open it up for, for questions in just a moment. But EJ, I don't want to entirely let you off the hook. What are you looking at in terms of indicator that gets us back to some of that, that substance that you were talking about and the... Uh, towards a better tomorrow. Because after all, democracy is not a spectator sport, right? Right, well, I think that after an event like the election of Trump, uh, it's harder for people to say to themselves, politics doesn't matter. 
Uh, and I think a lot of, a lot of people, um, including a lot of young people, um, are, have, uh, are really turned on to the importance of political engagement. So I think you know, that's thing one. Thing two is um, that there is a real gap between people under 45 and older people, particularly people over 65, and that um, younger people are both more progressive and more tolerant. I mean, if you look at the Doug Jones, uh, Roy Moore race, 61% of under 45s in Alabama voted for Doug Jones. Uh, Roy Moore won the over 65s. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that says something about the future mm -hmm. of politics, that politically, this younger generation could be the next greatest generation, which was also um, a more uh, progressive generation. But I think you've got to turn back Trumpism first. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why it's going to be very important that at least one House of Congress switch uh, in this fall's elections. And I know some anti-Trump Republicans who are rooting for a Democratic Congress, not because they're wild about everything Democrats might do, but because they think that's the only way that Republicans um, will start looking over their shoulder to the general election and not just mm -hmm. at primaries where they worry that Trump supporters will vote them out of office. If you're voted out in the general election, the primary doesn't matter. Um, and so, um, and then from there, we do have a tendency to elect presidents who are very different than the one before. You might have noticed that this one's very different <laughs> from uh, Barack Obama, and we look for different traits. Uh, and so, um, we might have the next president might be a little more boring, uh, but might have other traits that actually have to do with beginning to solve some of these problems. Great, thank you. And thank you both for your comments, and we're going to, yes. I feel like instead of talking about issues and what matters, to our nation in terms of policy, we're talking a lot about this as a horse race. Who's getting what percents of, and, and so I think that that's borderline negligence on the part of the press, and that there's some culpability there in his election. And I'd like to know if there's been any introspection in that <coughs> regard, and what you might see as a fix for that, if you see it as a problem. Yeah, I do. I think there's been a lot of introspection. The chapter in our book, and I'm, you know, Norman Tom are academics, but I'm a journalist, and I sort of played a major role in the chapter on the press, is quite critical in two respects. One is, um, I do think there was a difference between uh, print and television. Um, and just to tell a brief story that illustrates how I feel about the Trump coverage on television, um, I was in our kitchen one night, and I had one of the cable networks on, and they were showing a live Trump speech. And I said, I don't want to watch that, so I switched to another network, and they were showing the same live Trump speech. And I turned to my wife, this was early in the campaign, and I turned to my wife and I said, you know, what is this, Trump state television? Um, and there were actually times when an empty podium waiting for Trump got more coverage than A, almost all his other Republican opponents. Republicans should be ups are upset about this too, but also than Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. So I do think there was this um, chase for ratings, and he did produce ratings. 
uh, that went on that was very disturbing. Um, I think that, uh, secondly, um, <clears throat> they're really, they're, again, this false equivalence theme. Um, you know, I don't think it's a partisan statement. I mean, as some might say it's a partisan statement <coughs> to say that Hillary Clinton's flaws were equal to Donald Trump's flaws. Um, and in fact, Donald Trump was the first candidate in history who fended off one scandal with another scandal. Um, and, and, and I think there was a structural problem where uh, all through the campaign, it was the same consistent drumbeat against Clinton, the email server, the speeches, um, you know, the, the, the speech income, um, what, what was the, uh, you know, Benghazi for a while, but it was a fairly consistent message, whereas with Trump, um, partly because no one expected him to win, there was plenty of serious investigation eventually, uh, but there wasn't um, much before that. And then to your point about policy, um, while I agree with you in principle, more than in principle, that I wish people, uh, journalism had done more uh, about policy, um, the press's coverage is often driven by how policy oriented um, the campaign is. And Trump did have policy. I mean, his immigration, we might not like what he said, but it was policy. The protectionism was uh, policy. Um, and that, um, you know, the Clinton campaign would argue that um, she gave a lot of very serious policy speeches that didn't get covered, and I kind of agree with that. I think she should have done more, but I also think her campaign didn't force policy enough um, into the discussion. 9% of her ads are about the economy compared to 34% of Trump's ads, according to a very good study by an academic. That's problematic. That was, I think, a, 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 an error. So yeah, I think we should cover policy more than we do, uh, but I also think that some of that was rooted in the campaign, but I think there are other critiques uh, of the press that you know, I think we might agree on quite a bit in critiquing the press, but you can take a look at if, I'm not trying to sell the book, but if you want to, it's in the first uh, chapter of the book. Nick. If I could add, I, I think one of the, uh, though we don't, we don't talk about it, I think there was a difference in the treatment of Hillary Clinton because she was yeah. a woman. And I think that's something that people are not wanting to say. I mean, if Matt Lauer had not fallen from the grace, so to speak, I mean, he was a prime example when they went back and they looked at how he treated Hillary Clinton and how he treated Donald Trump. And it could be back then they didn't think that Donald Trump had much substance. But, you know, a lot of people vote by a gut reaction. I mean, they're, in this room, I would expect everyone to think about policy. Uh, the question is, out, I mean, how do people really vote? And someone told me this, and I think they're absolutely right. It comes down to whether they like you or not. And I've been a Clinton supporter since 2008. And I will tell you, the one thing that I have come to understand, I don't like it, but I've come to understand, is Hillary is not warm and fuzzy. <laughs> and, and, so, and because you can't, I think, as a woman politician, it's very difficult to be both, in a way, because then they don't take you seriously, that you can make the tough decisions. And it's something, it's, a, it's really something that only women have to overcome. 
I think that if it was a man running against Donald Trump, it would be a totally different scenario. But it was, it was Hillary, and that's part of it. So I think part of the discussion has got to include the fact that she was a woman, or she is a woman, and the way press treated her because she was perceived as that, that, that it's a higher standard. See, the Fox News headline on this discussion would be, Democratic Congresswoman denies Clinton is a woman now. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> That's right. Next, next question. Just, I'm curious. Next question is on your right. Can I ask Wait, a quick question, Congresswoman, very short. I've always thought Hillary Clinton presents much warmer in private than in public. Is that your Yeah, she, she, she really... It's very odd. Yeah. She really does, but I think it's this... I think women who are running for higher offices have always got that, it's like that stigma, especially of our generation, so to speak. It, it's, it's very difficult. So one of the things that I think women of our generation want to do is to make sure the women of the next generation and subsequent generations do not have to prove that they are first equal to or as good as a guy before they will be taken seriously. And that's the problem, that's why you know, people, people are, especially women, are always held to this strange standard that, you know, I, I got to prove that I can be as smart as you before anyone will listen. And that's almost the, the way people feel. No, I, I think it's, the box is if uh, you're not tough and you're a woman, then you're not tough enough. But if you are tough, then you're strident. That's right. In other words, that there are like triple standards going on here. That well, thank you. Somebody I'll has remember to, that. that yeah. I'll, I'll quote that. <laughs> I'm interested, I think we all are, in how incredibly uh, woman positive the media is right now. There's lots of material. There's lots of support. It's um, very uplifting to see support for the Me Too movement and for the women who've been testifying against Larry Nassar. So it all seems very promising, but we have uh, Mike Pence as our vice president. We have a religious right that's the foundation of Trump's uh, ruling. And we've got challenges to reproductive freedom all across the country and to Planned Parenthood. So we have these really divergent senses of what it is to be a woman right now in this country. And I just like your sense of those tensions and how they're playing out. I, I think there's no question that it's, it seems almost schizophrenic, and that's what I think you're implying, and it, and it really is. It's, it's, this, it's because of the, the sexual harassment and the fact that the sexual harassment is coming to the forefront, but it's also one of the, 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 the I guess the, um, for lack of a better description, the complaints I had to my male colleagues as we, we sat in a, a, a policy uh, committee I said, you know, I said, the thing that bothers me the most is that, yes, the Me Too movement and, and everything that's going on, but I said the media is, is only asking women. So they're only coming to those of us who are elected officials and asking us, okay, if this happened, then, then it, are you a zero tolerance person? And I said, how many of you guys have been asked that? And you know what? Someone told me, I'd answer that question, but nobody asked us. Because it is, I think it's a combination of guilt, maybe, and feeling that, okay, we really have not treated women fairly, so now we're gonna put all this emphasis on women, but it's still unfair. 
because women are, are put in a situation where they have to justify everything that they say, and a guy, to me, who should be answering the question about, you know, for example, in the Senate, should, should Al Franken resign? Should he resign? It, when you look at the initial reaction to it, it was all women senators. There wasn't a guy, there wasn't a male senator there until it got to the point where I think they felt that it was necessary to actually speak up. Same thing in the House. It was the women who were being asked what their opinions were. No guy was being asked. And I said, that's not fair as well. But I think that thanks to the Women's March, thanks to the J20 movement, thanks to the Me Too movement, thanks to, to what, um, well, for example, I don't think I'm saying anything out of school when I say women were in the House that are going to be there for Donald Trump's State of the Union, which is Tuesday, we're wearing black in honor of Oprah and, and that whole movement. That's what we're going to do. But I will guarantee you, if a guy comes in with a black shirt or whatever, he's probably not going to be asked why you're dressed like that, but all the women are going to be asked because it's, I think it's their way to discredit women as well. Um. The case, for example, the Nasser case, um, I think there is actually something very, very close to a national consensus, nay, mm -hmm. national unanimity, almost national unanimity on behavior like that. It's just so appalling uh, what's going on there. And it is, um, you know, it is a very good thing that all this stuff is being exposed. On some of these other questions, there still are very deep cultural and religious divisions in the country. Uh, certainly, the you know abortion, the abortion opinion on abortion really hasn't changed that much over a long period of time, and people uh, still have very uh, strong views on both sides of that. And um, there, you know, the, so that I don't, I think that we can make progress on one front without making progress as uh, people would see it on the other front because we are still very divided on those questions. We made public opinion has moved far more on gay marriage than it has on abortion, for example. Um, so Last I just question. think this reflects the fact that this, this battle is still going on, even if we've made big progress in certain areas. <laughs> you, you mentioned that you were optimistic for the future, and I actually only managed to read the first half of your book today, so if you could elaborate <laughs> on that a little bit. And then um, for the Congresswoman related, you mentioned that your generation of female politicians really feel that, that tough balance of being likable and tough. In Senator Gillibrand's book, she talked about learning to use emotional pleas for 9-11 first responders and military change. Do you feel the younger generation, Senator Gillibrand, uh, Congresswoman Gabbard, do, they, do you have hope that they're better at finding that balance of the likability and the toughness and the perception? And what's the next generation of younger female politicians? Well, I'll be real quick and uh, so the Congresswoman can go to that. Um, you know, as I said at the beginning, you know, my grounds for optimism are basically looking at how the country has reacted to the Trump experience and mobilized. I'm looking at the broad trend in public opinion polls where you're really looking at 60% of Americans who have now consistently said 
there's something terribly wrong here. You're looking at Trump declining in the groups that are his very base, including um, evangelical Christians, including non-college educated whites. Um, you know, and I think there's a realization that these policies, um, you know, the, the, a lot of the campaign talk to the working class was a con. Um, and so, the, you know, uh, that is where my optimism for the long term comes from. But I, I just want to close with an experience my son had that I have sort of uh, has given me almost my personal slogan for the year. By some wanted to took a year off before he'd been working for a while. Once is going to law school, but wanted to spend a year doing some anti-Trump organizing and uh, some travel. So he's now doing the travel part. But he worked on a project in Connecticut uh, called Fight Back Connecticut that Senator Chris Murphy had mm, uh, yeah. organized, where they were trying to turn anti-Trump activism into local democratic activism in the local elections there. And they flipped 19 towns from Republican to Democratic. But the reason I tell this story is not to talk about that or to brag on my son, although I would do that all by a son and two daughters. I do that all the time. But because what he said was the most moving experience of all the door knocks he did. And he said he was knocking, I've forgotten the town he was in. Um, and the man comes to the door, he's African American, he's friendly and very serious about politics. And my son asked him, you know, are you gonna be uh, going out to vote uh, next Tuesday? And the man sort of looked at James very seriously and said, it's our job. And that's become my slogan for this year, that it's our job to be civically engaged, it's our job to be politically engaged, and we need to do it right now, especially uh, because democracy needs us, but we also need to do it because we're American. And so I just want to urge everybody in this room, I probably don't have to encourage everybody in this room, although, as my son likes to say, sitting around drinking wine and complaining about Trump doesn't change anything. Uh, and, uh, and so I hope we all remember with that man that it's our job. Thank you very much for coming tonight. In, in response to your, your question, I'd like to think so. And you know, I see Jadine in front of me, so I'd like to thank Patsy Mink, who was, of course, Title IX, the Patsy Mink Act, when she left us, that she felt she made it better for people of my generation. I'd like to think the same, but there's going to be only one true indicator, and that is that if either of them or both of them run for higher office, whether the country will support them. That's going to be the true indicator of whether or not we have been able to transition. Because I am, remain a firm believer that part of Hillary Clinton's problem was, and someone else told me this, America was not ready for a woman. And I hope America is ready for a woman in that generation, and, or maybe even before them, if possible. But that's going to be the only indicator that I think that we are going to have as a true barometer of where we are as a country. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you so much.